One of the things that I end up really enjoying about the nature of reading scripture is that um, depending on your circumstance, depending on your season of life, scripture has a way of revealing different truths at different times. Have you had this experience before? So it's like a gem that you hold up that the light is reflecting off of. And depending on how you might shift it, you see different nuances. You see different dynamics, see different depths. And scripture has that same dynamic at play. In fact, later on in the New Testament, it would say that scripture is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And what that means is just because we read something even if it feels historical, doesn't mean it doesn't have this really inspired application. So I want to share with you a couple of passages that might or might not sound familiar to me, to you. Part of me hopes that they will sound familiar because I want you to be able to, like a good gem, kind of do a half turn and be able to see things within a new light. Now, I want us to be able to listen to this. Sometimes I read scripture, and depending on what's going on around me, um, the scripture will speak louder or softer. Things that were once really clear didn't have that same message. So it might be because it's an election year that sometimes scripture speaks differently, or that a new group is offended, or that Black Lives Matters has emerged, and scripture has a way of speaking to all of it. Um, there is a tendency for us, depending on what's going around, maybe we get out of the hospital and, and we got a clean bill of health or we got a promotion, or we, something really good happened to our child. Whatever the case might be, Scripture has a way of being dynamic enough to feel really relatable. So, if you have your Bibles, I want to look at 1 Samuel chapter 30. Again, this might not be a brand new passage. Maybe for some of you it will, but I want to make some observations about it, um, draw out some things that I think are culturally significant, but then use it to speak against the backdrop of our series where we learn to walk a mile in their shoes. In their shoes. Because we might read scripture. Uh, if you could, let's hold off before we get to that part, Baron. Um, I want to go through some other parts. I, I didn't include the whole chapter just because it's so much, and I just kind of want to highlight a couple of verses. But we might read things, and, and it's very tempting, very easy to see scripture as a historical, like a static document. Um, and what we miss when scripture becomes historical static is this personal, dynamic, personal, relatable experience that I think God wants us to have with it. So the picture here that we're supposed to get is that David is going to battle uh, against the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, in retaliation to David's army, have just raided the Israelite encampment. Now, what's interesting about it is that the camp was left unguarded. David and all his army were off doing their own thing, and what was left behind was a very vulnerable um, village. I don't know, sure the exact size. And so the Amalekites come in, and not only do they loot everything, but they take their wives 
and their sons and their daughters, and they're like, sweet, to the victor goes the spoils, and they take off. Well, you can imagine when they finally get back to camp, and it's a ghost town, and they walk into this place, and they go, oh, wait, not only is our stuff gone, our families are gone. And so again, I just want to highlight a couple of things, and when it says, when David and his men came back to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives, and their sons, and their daughters had taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud, and then it said that David became very distressed. Why? Because he's at the tip of the spear, because he's the point person. And so it says in verse 6 that they wanted to stone him. Wait a second. Aren't we on the same team? Wait a second. Aren't, aren't we of the, kind of the same cloth? Didn't what happened to, to us happen to you too? Except that I would simply draw out this conclusion. People who have been victimized, people who are grieving, people who are hurting have a way of wanting to hurt others. So when you grow up and you're victimized and you just want to tend to seek revenge, you want to blame. It doesn't mean it's rational. It means that you're grieving too. Just a simple cultural commentary. I don't think this has any application today because there aren't any victims today. There aren't any people who have been oppressed today. But this is a good static historical document, so it's good to know what happened then and there. I'm being facetious with you. But he goes on, and so um, he seeks the Lord. Because if people want to stone me, I think it has something of re-stimulating my pursuit of God. And so he goes to the Lord about, what should I do next? He says, go attack the Amalekites and get back what is yours. And so he grabs an army of 600 people, and they began to venture out. And when they came in verse 9, if you're following along, in Besser Ravine, it's a, or some translations would call it a big valley, where, um, where some stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine, but David and 400 men continued the pursuit. Okay, real pic quick picture. These are all like 600 men, and 200 of them feel like they have to play their man card because they're too exhausted, they're too tired to go and fight the battle. Is this a sympathetic crowd? I think not. Aren't we all kind of in the same boat? We've all been on the same hike. We've all had the same stuff taken. And you guys are getting whiny, except that somehow it's plausible. Somehow it's okay. So David looks at the 400 and he says, come on, we'll go through the ravine together. And they end up finding where the Amalekites are camped out. They're on a hillside having this big party because why? their net worth just went up. Their family lines just grew. And so they just come in and, and get back everything that, that was theirs and, and take them out completely, right? And so if you're like me, I prefer getting my way. In fact, anyone can be charming when we're getting our way, right? Like, it, it's really easy to be on our A game when, when things are going our way. And so it says in verse 18, David recovered everything that the Amalekites um, had taken, including the wives, and nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl was taken. And so he took all the flocks and the herds, and he drove men ahead of them and their livestock, saying, Whoa, this is David's plunder. So they went from st wanting to stone him because of all of this stuff that had happened to him, 
to now going, oh, David's our leader. This is all of his, this is his doing. He led us on this conquest. So the second simple just side note that I think is a neat cultural commentary is that prosperous crowds are some of the most fickle crowds. If you want to see where the church is at its best, if you want to see where the kingdom of God is growing in leaps and bounds, you go to Africa, you go to South America, you go to Asia, and the Christian church, while being underground or while being persecuted, is thriving and growing because there's something about the tension that creates an earnestness. So here you have these prosperous people now getting their way, and they can turn on a dime. In this case, it was for the better. They're like, oh, isn't David awesome? What were we ever thinking? Stone him. We were just kidding, right? Well, this is where it picks up and gives us a really interesting commentary about the kind of community that I think the early church tapped into, but we see what was at the heart of God for what it meant to be the people of God in community. And so as they're coming back, let's read in verse 21, then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and were left behind at the Bezer Ravine. And they came out to meet David the people with, and the people with him. And as David and the men approached, he greeted them. But all of the evil men and the troublemakers among David's followers said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder that we've recovered. However, we'll be good enough. Each man may take his wife and children and go. Well, that's nice. Does this sound remotely familiar? Does this sound like a, a current commentary? Is that you didn't put into it, so you didn't get out, you don't get out of it. You didn't help, so you shouldn't be able to enjoy. Except that David will have none of it, and he interrupts this sort of pious victory dance, this sort of, no, 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 this is our plunder, you can have your family back, but all of this, mm -mm. We don't have to share because you guys were too tired. And David wouldn't hear of it. And so he says, no, my brothers, you must not do that. This is with what the Lord has given. Wait, wait, wait. I fought for it. I risked my life for it. I bled for it. I sweat for it. And he goes, no, no, no. What the Lord has given because ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter your education, no matter what you had to start with, no matter what opportunities broke, God is ultimately the source. And so when they come back, he says, he has protected us and handed, us, handed over to us the forces that came against us. Who will listen to what you say? The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that who went down into battle. All will share alike. What a great picture of community. Real quick, this is where, if we're a good attendant to Mission Hills and we're paying attention to what it means to practice a rhythm of community, let me just reach out and take a picture of to what it means to walk in their shoes. People who were undeserving of the plunder, people who were deserving of the plunder, but here's the thing, they were all in community together. David being the leader saying, no, 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 we all benefit. Whether you're on the supply line or on the front line, we all benefit. Chick, snap, 
ding, whatever little sound your phone makes, we just need to take a picture of what true community looks like. See, preparing uh, people caring for each other, including the weak, caring for the strong, nobody in need, that's the picture, and that's the way it's supposed to work. So if we can just consider this, I want to make a couple of observations about the kind of community that I think God is intending. God is trying to grow and groom in each of us. And so the first thing I would simply say is that community, if you're taking notes, community requires consistency. And this is a really challenging one because we live in a culture of growing mobility. We live in a, a culture of growing technology. And so no longer is the day that you are raised in a community, go to the local college if you even went to college or picked up the local trade and just stayed and built a life there. My parents bought a house in 1968 and lived in it for 43 years. They were literally one of the few people who paid off their 30-year fixed loan. Who does that? Except that community depth of community, true community, not like happy hour community, but the kind of community that has a history together requires consistency. And so the way I like to play, put it is, is that community doesn't happen without a standing appointment. See, we have people that we like that still live in Austin, but we've lost connection with them. Maybe because a stage of life ended, maybe because our kids graduated, maybe because we changed jobs, maybe because we moved to a different neighborhood. Either way, in any case, we lost a standing appointment. And so what it means to be the people of God is for us to prioritize the need to have a standing appointment because that gives us a kind of consistency. Because the truth of the matter is, as the days go by, as the months go by, and as the years go by, we're going to have some highs and we're going to have some lows. We're going to have times where we bury each other's parents. And there's going to be times where we welcome home prodigals. There's going to be times where we celebrate promotions and we pray through unemployment. There's going to be times where we end up coming alongside each other because someone just had a birth and we want to provide meals and someone just had a death and so we want to provide meals. This is what it means to experience the depth of community because once we begin to experience community on that level, the chance where we're known, where we're cared for without even asking for favor, is the way we begin to experience God's provision, God's presence, his tangible hands and feet. It's what it means to walk a mile in their shoes because we've all lost someone and we've all started over. We've all relocated and we've all had to like find a job. We understand what it means, and so we apply the sense of Christian community to that, and we take a picture of it. And so um, if you look at this picture, there's no community without this standing appointment, and the 200 who didn't go into battle didn't arrive just yesterday. They were part of the community when they were strong, and others were weak, and now they're weak, and others are strong. See, there's always going to be seasons of giving, and there's always going to be seasons of receiving. And some of you are really good at giving, and some of you are really bad at receiving. 
But what it means to go further into community is to let both of these things unfold so that God can be God and meet us right where we're at. Um, now, I, I think part of what makes it unique is that we have a, a culture that has not only growing mobility, but um, it's, it's constant consumerism, right? Because we get offended and we get bored or things get difficult and so we wanna move on. In fact, the way I put it is, it feels like our culture is becoming more disposable. So rather than reconciling, I'll just go find a new best friend. Um, rather than trying to work through an understanding, I'll just get a go new job. Rather than working through this, diff we, we wanna s start over and so, um, whether it be a new job or a new spouse or a new church, I, all I'm saying is if, if we do the spade work, um, I think God meets us in there and he provides for that. His grace is sufficient for that. Um, it's, it's not to say that it's wrong if you're in a bad work environment to go find something else, but, but I am suggesting that community is built through some kind of continuity and consistency, what I like to call our standing appointment together. And so let me just ask you this question. If you're taking notes, this would be kind of the applicational moment because we would pull out our phone and we'd just ask the question, well, who have been the people, what names come to mind, who have been the healthiest emotionally and spiritually who have been that consistent presence in your life? Because that's where I'd want to pull out my phone and I'd want to take a picture so that I can consider filling his or her shoes to someone else. When we think about who's been that consistent presence, what do you do, try and repay them? No. If I tried to be that for the mentors in my life or for the people who have invested in my life, that would be ridiculous. The only thing I can learn to do is try and become like them to someone else. So who is that person that you could just snap a picture of? Um, the second thing that I would just notice out of um, this picture of, of community, and again, this is not a passage that's taught in terms of community, is responsiveness fuels community. Why? Simply because when we're close enough to know and help and support and celebrate, we are able to see community come together. In fact, there's a verse out of Romans 15.1 where it talks about a strong caring for those who are in a moment of weakness. And it says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. See, what I think David's calling for and what the early church was going for is not independence, not self-sufficiency, and not codependence, but it's interdependence. It means that I share my excess today, and when I have a shortage of tomorrow, someone's there for me. That could be a shortage financially, that could be a shortage emotionally, that could be a, uh, a shortage spiritually, but you stumble into a tribe and you get picked up because no man should be left behind, right? Because that's the picture for community. So then we ask the question, who has been the person what name comes to mind that's called on you for support, for help, for meals, for encouragement? Who's been that person to call on you? Because again, that would be a picture worth taking to rem simply remember that your life is not your own. Your life is an offering. 
It's a total adjustment for me to think that my life is an offering. So these guys who have risked their very life and have probably bled, they probably, you know, you know, they're in hand-to-hand combat and they come back and they're supposed to share as if these guys were on the front lines too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does because our ability to respond is what fuels community. And so the, the third thing I would just draw out of this is that the sense of mission is what drives community. Mission drives community. The word worship, it comes out of the Greek language. It has a Latin translation that is where we get the word liturgy. Do you know what liturgy in Latin actually translates? Service. Not service like something you attend, like a concert or a restaurant that's something to be consumed. It means like service, as in your life as an offering, as in an act of the will to give kind of like a spiritual practice. So when we come together for worship, we might be in a sanctuary, but next week we might come together for worship and share in the fellowship at Circle Brewing Company or in Chip's living room. The point is that we come together as making note that our lives are but an offering, and so your attendance matters because there's someone that might need what you have. Because they might be weak when you might be strong and you might be weak and feel like I don't have it in me to show up tonight And they have just what you need. That's the way community works now Let me just make this note is that think about some of your strongest relationships My guess is that there was a season of your life that that relationship was formed and forged So maybe you have these college friends that you're still good friends with but you don't get to see regularly But they feel like you know, they feel like family because you you were poor together and you backpacked across Europe or or maybe you stayed up really late trying to cram for finals and they saved your butt because you couldn't pass chem without them or or maybe you had these friends when you were young parents and in your kids you just felt like you couldn't see the light of day but you had some other young families that you could just scratch your head with who helped you with like know that you're not crazy because whatever you, you were bad at potty training I don't know or maybe you had some, some people that you've grown close to because you worked with, and you worked not just for advancement, but, but you, you saved the company together, and you knew the sacrifice. Maybe there was people that you did startup world with. My point is that the people that we share a season of life with grows a relationship because you have a shared activity. See, it's not just about getting a bunch of people who have the same life stage together and going, oh, we all think the same, or we all are foodies, so let's have a small group for foodies, or let's do a book club. Those things aren't bad, but I'm just talking about the depth of community is going to come when you share mission together. That's why going forward, the way we're going to start tribes isn't going to be just because we have some people in a geographical reason. It's because someone shows up and they go, you know what I'm really passionate about? You know what I'm already involved in? You know what I have a burden for is these refugees and these immigrants that keep showing up to Austin. Or you know what? There's these teen parents down at Dell Valley High School that I want to get more involved with. Or there's these, um, there's these kids who are part of CPS that don't get birth they acknowledgement because they're orphans of the state of Texas. Or there's this foster family that, and on and on 
and on and say, is there some traction there with some other people? Can we build and launch smaller communities around mission? Because if we just come together because we all think the same, it's just a matter of time before we reach a disagreement where we're like, all right, thanks, it's been nice knowing you. But if we come together with shared mission, well, that just promotes community. And so I want to encourage you to be thinking about this, this sort of Minutemen army that's lining up behind you. I was just talking with a lady this week who's over in the Runberg neighborhood um, with her kids who are um, one's a seventh grade girl and one's a fifth grade boy, but they happen to play violin and viola. And they recognize that there's these inner city kids who are immigrants from another country who were some of those kids that came over the border about a year, year or so. And they, they, they were sort of, they had no parents with them, but they just found their way over the border. And they're just teaching music lessons over there in the Ruddenberg neighborhood. Do you play an instrument? Do you know some musicians? Because I got an outlet for them and maybe we should start another tribe. That's how this thing works, is mission fuels or drives the sense of community. In fact, I like to say it this way. Community isn't something that we create. It's what we discover. And um, we don't have to always enjoy the same activities or be in the same life stage to enjoy the company of others. But sharing the same concern, I think, is the best fuel for community. So the question is, what concerns you? Is there a cause? Is there a group? Is there a family or a need that you're already invested in? And then who could you invite to serve with you? See, now if I was to pull out my camera because some feet came to mind, that's a picture of how we discover community together. One more story, and, and then I want to be done, and it comes out of Exodus 17. And again, um, you might recognize this story um, but the chronology is, is not lost on me. There's this children of Egypt who have been in slavery and oppressed for 400 years get delivered. And just as they're on the other side of the Red Sea, they, they immediately start grumbling, you know, because we're hungry. At least when we were slaves in Egypt, we got fed. We had provision. You know, what are we going to do? And so, and then it's like, what are we going to drink? And, you know, so this, this is the scene. And so they're kind of grumbling, which... I don't know of anyone who's grumbling today, but it, it's just a historical piece, uh, like I said. And so, um, and I don't know what it is about the Amalekites, but I feel like there's been this rivalry that's gone on um, through the centuries. And so here we have not David and the Amalekites, but it's Moses and the Amalekites. And, and it says, um, as, we, as we begin to read um, what happened in their picture, so the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites and, and Moses said to Joshua, choose some of the men to fight the Amalekites because tomorrow I'm going to stand on the top of the hill um, of, with the staff of God in my hands. And so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses has ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands because it was like, all day long, like dark to dark, um, your hands tend to get tired. Uh, 
Aaron and her were there to hold up his hands. But as long as they were up, um, they were winning. But it, the, when they began to lower, the Malachites were winning. And so when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and they put it under him. And so he could sat, uh, and he sat down. And then Aaron and her held up his hands, one on each side, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. And so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears this. And so Moses built an, an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner, or what would be Yahweh Nisei, or Jehovah Nisei, God is my banner. If you ever grew up singing the song, his banner over me is love, this is where we get that revelation of who God is and it's and it's and it's a beautiful picture now the question I had when I read this is who won who did the work in, in this picture like who won the battle was it Moses or was it Joshua and his army because Moses couldn't have done it without Aaron and her each holding up a hand and so um what matters is their interdependence. It doesn't matter who gets the credit because they're living in community and God gets all the glory from it. And so prior to this, they were just simply complaining about returning to Egypt. I said earlier that scripture often reads like a static text. In fact, we often listen like we're in a kind of a lecture. And um, while it's not bad, I feel like sometimes it's limiting. In fact, I believe that scripture is so vibrant, sometimes we're supposed to feel it on an emotional level, if not even a physical level. In fact, there are some expressive congregations that have, and scripture has all kinds of postures of worship, whether it be laying prostrate or of raised hands or of, or of cupped hands or of bowed hands or kneeling before. And some of you grew up in maybe a tradition where you were more demonstrative with how you worship because scripture invites us into that kind of participation. There are things that we're supposed to feel out of scripture and there's, supposed, there's also things that I think physically we can also experience out of scripture. So without letting this story just go by like a historical thing, I wonder if I could just invite you to try something tonight. I want to read this passage again once more with you, but I want to read it and, and almost act it out the same way that Moses would have experienced it. See, what if, like Moses, we felt the burn of faith we felt the burn of obedience, and we felt the burn of community. What if we began to just lift up our hands together through the reading of God's word, and then as we finish, just begin to offer up a few maybe one-sentence prayers on behalf of this community, on behalf of the people who are doing well and the people who are struggling, on the behalf of the ones who are here and the ones who are not yet here. But could we just do that together tonight as just a way of closing? I know it feels a little weird and a little awkward, but I'm committed to making Scripture come alive in our lives so that faith can be 
experienced in a whole new way. So here's what I want to do. Maybe we'll just follow, uh, follow my lead. If you want to stand with me now, and we're just going to go to that passage together and make this part of our closing prayer. And as, as he said, you know, the Lord is my banner, and Moses raised up his hands in a banner testifying the power that God displayed over the covering of his people. Let me just read out, and as, as we can, um, let's just call out to God, and then when we're done, maybe just offer some one-sentence prayers of both praise and request on behalf of our community. And so while the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them, and Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek, Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill, holding the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. And meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of the hill nearby. As long as Moses held up his up the staff in his hands, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he began to drop his hands, the Amalekites gained the advantage. And so Moses' arms, because he began before it was light out, soon became tired, and he kept him up till sunset. And so he could no longer hold him up. And so he had community in this case, and I'm just going to encourage you to find a hand next to you if you can, and help them, because maybe you're stronger than their arms are, or maybe you're wanting to put your arms down. And so hold a hand up next to you, because we're in community. And he said, so Aaron and her found a stone for him to sit on, and they stood on each other's side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. And as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in the battle. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. Moses built an altar there, and he named it Yahweh Nisi, meaning the Lord is my banner. And so, Lord, we hold up your banner and believe that your banner over us is love. We believe that you have begun a good work, and you want to be faithful to see it through. And so I pray for this community, for the ones that are here, but I pray today for the people of peace who you have given us influence with that you want to... Meet needs in us as much as through us. Let us pray to the Lord together, and we would just all say, Lord, have mercy. Yeah, shows the needs and the opportunities.
Someone else. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Restore that relationship. Heal it. Pray for Kathy Pavlovich and her mom as she spends the last couple weeks without ineffective chemo and um, pray that they would just enjoy these last days together. Lord, for the two Syrian families that just were relocated to my neighborhood. Mm. Lord, have mercy. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that you're with us, helps us to see you. And we pray this in the name of the risen one. Amen.